the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses reeds, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. And at the controls, my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. For those of you who don't know about the show, the show is, and number one, some people ask you, are you a lawyer? Yes, I am a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for 40 years now. And I practice estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, you know, we, we if you have any questions to email us, you can email us any question. Michael, what's the email address? If you want to ask us a question, you're going to want to reach us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors, of course, spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. Okay, so Beth, do we have an email question? Well, we have an email topic. Okay. Um, as you know, we've been telling everybody for a while, you know, you've got to get your ducks in a row if Medicaid is something you're going to be needing for home care because they were changing the regulations so that as of October 1st, you had to have everything in together or... Before were, October 1st. Before October 1st. So by the end of September, everything had to be set up just right so that you would be eligible for October 1st when the regulations changed. But something happened. What was that? Okay, well, basically the deadline has been extended to uh, honor before, well, before January 1st, which is, means honor before December 31st. So in other words, you still can, if you put all your assets in an irrevocable trust between now and the end of the year, the first day, working day after the New Year's, you can apply for home care Medicaid in New York. After that, we're going to go to a 30-month penalty, which means, let's say, if you put $100,000 in a trust on December 31st, you can apply for home care Medicaid if that's all your assets. You can apply for home care Medicaid on January 2nd, the first working day of the month. If you put it in on January 2nd, you can't apply for 30 months. Now, there are different exceptions. There are penalty periods. We can run out. You can spend some money. But um, I'm simplifying it. But the difference between putting the money in a trust on December 31st is you can apply January 2nd. If you put the money in on January 2nd, you face a 30-month penalty period. So, you know, it's... I know there were a whole lot of people that were nervous because they thought, oh, my goodness, did I miss the deadline? Did I miss the bed deadline? You've got you've got that extra time. So don't yeah, if panic. You procrastinated. So you went past October 1st. Well, you still you got a 90 day reprieve. Of course, we've already lost about 10 days in, in October right now. So uh, if, if you want to do your planning, it's time to do your planning now, because a lot of times you have decisions to make. And the decisions might take a month, 30 days, 40 days, whatever. And, you know, it does take us a week or two to get the documents drafted. So if if you want to do the planning, go ahead, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, we have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Manhattan, and Staten Island. So... We do not charge for the first meeting. The first meeting, we do not charge for a consultation fee. 
first meeting is free. The initial consultation is free. Everything we do as far as elder law and estate planning is done on a flat fee basis. We don't charge by the hour. We charge by the job. So come in. We talk it over. I'll give you my recommendations based on my experience, and then you take it from there. And there's no one right answer for everybody. A lot of times people come in and say, what's the right answer? It depends on your family dynamics. Do you have a son or daughter you can trust and get along with? Do you not have relatives? Are you going to leave your assets to your children who get along? Or do you have somebody out there who's going to contest your will? You know, things are different, and, and everybody's a little different, and there's no one right answer for everybody. But the one wrong answer for everybody is not to do, you know, anything. Do something. Start with the will. Everybody should have a will, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later with Kevin McCullough in, in, in a couple of minutes. Now, the second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, and we're going to be talking a little bit about politics and, and history Today, we're going to be talking to Michael Anton, who was in the Trump administration. He has a book out, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. And it is kind of a bleak um, a bleak outlook on what possibly could happen to the United States of America. So, you know, let's, let's listen to it and be warned and prepared for the future. There is an election coming up, and let's not vote. Let's not forget to vote during the election. Now... The next interview, the last interview today, we, we've got a Civil War Roundtable guest who's coming on. We're, the Civil War Roundtable is going to meet on October 14th. Um, usually, you know, we say, hey, we're going to be at the Three West Club or the Coffee House or something like that. But, Michael, where, where's the meeting going to be this year, this month? Well, this, this month we're going to be doing it virtually. So we're going to be conducting our meetings via Zoom. Um, for those of you who haven't participated in a Civil War Roundtable Zoom meeting yet, the first virtual meeting you attend for the season is going to be free for you. Um, we will send you the link. It's going to be after that that we're going to ask anyone who is interested in continuing to attend our virtual meetings to please purchase a membership with the Roundtable. And, of course, when we do get back to in-person meetings, that will also mean discounted tickets for dinners, etc. For more information on how to join... Um, please email us at info at connorsandsullivan.com. That's info at connorsandsullivan.com. The roundtable is very interested in having you join us. We're very interested in seeing you in person at some point in the future. But for now, it's about getting you that Zoom link, and you'll be able to ask our speakers questions. should be a great time. So once again, please get in touch, and we hope to hear from you. Okay, now, most of you know, each week, Kevin McCullough takes a question from the from the email questions presented, and we... He asked me that question on his show, which you can hear on the stations here, uh, Monday through Friday on 570 The Mission, WMCA, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer. And, you know, he has... Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you you're going to get your real-life question answered by Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan. And, uh, Mike, this week's question pr comes from Gloria. She says, Dear Mr. Connors, if I put my house in my daughter's name, will I lose my star veterans exemption? I think a lot of people might have this question, Mike, but for those that don't know what she's talking about, can you explain? Yes. You know, like for the sake of argument, let's say you, you put your daughter's name on your deed. You're definitely going to lose your star exemption, and you're going to lose, assuming you have a senior citizen's exemption, you're going to lose that unless your daughter's a senior citizen herself and lives in the same house. Um, veterans exemption, they're a little bit more liberal on. But, yes, you will lose your exemptions if you just put your, your daughter's name on your house. That's why we like to do a trust. With the trust, you're still the owner of the house for tax purposes, and you keep all your exemptions, veterans, senior citizens, star. Well, and, friends, if you need uh, further details about how to do all of that, just call Connors & Sullivan. Uh, they're easy to reach at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. You can set up a free appointment. You can also find out a schedule of some helpful seminars that they have uh, on a regular basis. Uh, everything that they're doing, just call and ask. Uh, they'll be glad to help you with. And if you've got questions you want answered, uh, give them, uh, send them a note. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com is the best way to do that. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com and then be listening Thursdays here on Kevin McCullough radio, Saturday mornings at, uh, eight o'clock and Saturday evenings at six, uh, six PM on AM 570, the mission, uh, and, uh, FM 102.3. And of course, Sunday mornings starting at 11 on AM 970, the answer. Mike Connors, as always, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. 
and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Thanks to Kevin again. Uh, You can catch Kevin again Monday through Friday on both 570 The Mission and 970 The Answer. Now, our next guest is going to be Michael Anton, and I really didn't know that much about him, but Michael, you've read some of his articles. Yeah, you know, he has some, I mean, he's he's always been a voice that kind of stands out in terms, he does his research, he's very well versed in many different topics, I mean, our listeners are about to hear it firsthand from him, but he really rose to prominence during the 2016 election, when he wrote the article, article about that being the Flight 93 election, about seizing control of American, not just domestic, but also foreign policy from a group of elites in Washington, D.C., who really had run ramshod over it for, you know, from Clinton, from H.W. all the way through Clinton and George W. and then the Obama years. And it was a decisive turn in terms of the populace, the the general American populace, the reclaiming their stake in our republic. It, very interesting work all the way through, but as you said in the intro, it does get a little bit dark. The picture he paints is not a pretty one. He does say he would love to be proven wrong, and you know, with all the things going on right now, we can only pray for peaceful transition of power, for things to work out smoothly. Um, and you know, speaking of prayer, let's all take a moment when we can, pray for the president, for his family, for all the people around, you know, all the people in D.C., whether it from everyone from support staff all the way up to the people, the names that we know in the news every day, who have contracted COVID lately. It's a tough disease, and we just all we can do is hope that they get better. And please, everybody remember that the enemy is the disease. The enemy is this awful virus. Not each other. It's not each other. It is not political. We pray for our nation to get over this virus as quickly as we can. We pray for the president, his wife, everyone that's been hit by this awful, awful virus. In the meanwhile, we're going to take a short break, and after the break, we're going to be talking about our first with our first guest, Michael Anton. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest is Michael Anton. He's got a book out, The Stakes, 
America and the Point of No Return. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Thank you. Okay, so what is the book about? Uh, it's a kind of regime assessment. It's a fancy political science term, but it, it says, you know, we we know how we're, everybody who took civics uh, well before education got corrupted knows <laughs> how America is supposed to be governed. Are we still governed that way? My answer is we are not. I describe how we're actually governed. It's just kind of depressing. And then I say, if these present trends continue, what does the left want to do to the country? And uh, I describe that. Um, and I speculate as to what would happen if they get total power, if they win this election in the fall, if they retake the House and Senate and basically are able to implement their program across the board. And uh, I ask the question as to how long that kind of government they could keep going and what might happen if uh, they couldn't keep it, when and if they couldn't keep it going, when it when it broke. Um, I speculate about things that most conservative pretty much no conservative intellectual ever likes or wants to talk about and so refuses to consider, which is that the country might break up. There could be a secession movement. There could be other sort of regional resistance movements. There could be potentially a civil war or authoritarian rule, kind of top-down centralized authoritarian rule. All things I think we could be heading toward if we don't get off the path that we're on. And I conclude with my recommendation, which is, of course, reelect the president. No surprise that I would believe that, but also uh, laying out an agenda for a second term and really for a, a future for the Republican Party to move the party more to the center on uh, on especially on, on economic issues. Well, let me ask you something. Let's go through the, the dark side, so to speak. Let's say the Democrats, they, they have all, you know, the two houses and the presidency. What what's going to happen? Well, they've already said that they want to pack the Supreme Court, add at least two new states and the filibuster so that they can ram through their agenda without opposition. Um, I think what will happen is, look, I'm, I'm born and raised in California, and I lived a lot, a good portion of my life in New York. They will turn the country into effectively a blue state, but a coast-to-coast blue state with maybe the remnant of a Republican Party, but not one that is able to offer significant opposition uh, to stop any of the most radical things they want to do and not able to implement a program of its own. So, you know, just look at what, look at how New York and California are governed and extrapolate that over the entire United States. But worse, because New York and California, keep in mind, um, they have to deal with the fact that there are still red states. There's still opposition at the federal level. When there's no more breaks, there's no more blocks on what they want to do, I think they will implement their program whole. Now, okay, let's say, you know, let's say that happens. Now, in the past, in a lot of, in the past, when the Democrats have had full control, two years later, there's a take back of the Congress, or at least that's been the, you know, the history in the last 30, 40 years. You don't think that's going to happen this time around? I, it, it, I, I think it's less likely to happen at, because if the Democrats are never tired of telling us demographic change favors them. Right. The more the the, uh, the more immigrants we take in, in particular, the more the electoral districts tip blue. So and the Electoral College, uh, I think, is going to go first and then, you know, statewide races and then increasingly Congress. It's possible that the, the Republicans could retake Congress in two years. But the rec- track record of the Republican Party when they do that isn't great. They haven't really they don't use their power. Um, what I'd like to see, though, is a Republican Party that uses its power finally not just to pass tax cuts and deregulation, as important as those things can be, but to address the real issues, the real problems and concerns of middle America, get health care costs under control, um, do something about uh, outsourcing and the decline in manufacturing. And some of that requires using state power to um, uh, affect the economy in ways that Republicans are not comfortable doing for ideological reasons, but that I think they have to get comfortable doing both to win votes and hold on to their base, but also because middle America desperately needs help that free, rigid free market ideology that made sense in 1980, it doesn't provide in, in, in 2020. Can you give an example of that? Where, where would you change the direction of the Republican Party? Well, I, I, one thing I, um, I you know, I, Continue Trump's path of being more uh, pro-manufacturing, pro-domestic manufacturing, and don't be a free market, free trade ideologue, right? The free market says, 
wherever you can produce a widget at the lowest cost, that's where you could do it. The market has spoken, even if that means closing every factory in the United States and outsourcing every job. Um, it's the market, right? Well, no. I say the health of the citizenry is the fundamental consideration for a politician, not the market. And if the health of the citizenry means we're going to be producing widgets for $1.20 rather than $0.90, cents, so be it. And we can all pay slightly higher consumer prices, but have functioning communities with factories and jobs. Um, you know, that's not the message that the Republican Party puts out and, or, and has been putting out for the last 30 or 40 years, but I think it needs to be. And the reason um, Trump won that election in 2016, the main, the main reason, it seems to me, or one of them, was that he was finally talking not like, a, like an old school Republican who still believes that the calendar reads 1985. Let me ask you a question because you're, you know, you've, you've been in the White House. Why are the Republicans, why do they accomplish so little when they have control? Uh, I think because they're afraid of their own shadow and they're afraid of the power of the Washington Post and the New York Times and the mainstream media. Um, uh, they are uh, whipped by their leadership and their leadership is in the pocket of the donor class. And they are, uh, you know, it's a cynical, but I think it's partly true. They look toward the end. That is to say, they look toward um, their exit from Congress and how they're going to make money uh, and, 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 you know, stay in Washington, stay in the swamp as a permanent fixture. And uh, the way to do that is to go along with the, the leadership, to go along with the lobbyists and to go along with the donor class and not rock the boat. I mean, that, that sounds pretty bad. And, and is there any hope for the future? Because Donald Trump, I mean, even if he wins this time, he's not going to be around in 2024. No, the, the Donald Trump, I, I think we need him to win this time, but we also need a reformed Republican Party. We need a Republican Party that, that tacks toward the center on health care uh, and economics and, and trade and manufacturing, and that actually stands up for the interests of its voters. A lot of times what the Republican Party does is it pays lip service to the interests of its voters, but it doesn't act. So it talks a good game. But it doesn't deliver. So we need a Republican Party that isn't just talk, that actually delivers for its voters. If we can get that, then, then yes, there's hope for the future. I think one way or another we're going to get that. I mean, even if the worst case happens, the Democrats win everything and they start implementing their program, I don't think that the entirety of the American population will just passively acquiesce to total control uh, and a kind of blue woke tyranny. I think a big portion of the country will love it, but a big portion of the country won't. And eventually something will give. I think also that the blue woke tyranny program of the Democrats is anti-nature. It, and, it's, and it's riven with internal contradictions that will at some point bring it down. Now, the bringing down may be unpleasant for all of us to, to have to live through, but I do think any kind of government that goes against the grain of human nature is a thing that can't go on forever and so won't. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, these things can last a long time and do a lot of damage in the process. The Soviet Union lasted 70 years. Is, is, is uh, you know, blue Wokistan uh, possible ah. to last 70 years? I, I tend to think not. I don't know, though. But whatever. It won't last forever, and the human spirit will reemerge on the other side. Now, I mean, you did mention possible civil war. Why do you think that could happen, and what would happen? Because the Civil War is a consequence. It's, it's a thing that has happened throughout history. It's even happened to us once. It's ridiculous to think it can never happen again. I think what we have in this country now and have had for a while is a collection of elites in the major cities, in the blue cities, and in university towns, and in the upscale suburbs, and concentrated in big corporations, technology firms, banks, and so on, who think that they are superior and deserve to rule and want to raise the whip hand over their inferiors in the flyover country, the rubes, the hicks, the so on, the people they look down on. And eventually people get tired of getting pushed around. And things that can't go on forever, as I said, don't. And they push back. And, if, if, and I see as of now, I don't see a spirit of moderation or caution in the left. I see a kind of bloodthirsty hunger for total dominance and power which I believe if they achieve that, they will then begin to implement their agenda and uh, in ways that are punitive uh, or, or will at any rate be perceived as punitive by big parts of, of the middle of the country and people will not tolerate it and they will push back. And what form they push back, I don't necessarily know. I'm not predicting 
and I'm certainly not calling for a civil war, but I am saying that if this spirit of immoderation and contempt and hatred of half one half the country for the other, in particular the half the country that's more powerful, feels contempt and hatred for the half of the country that is less powerful, if that goes on, I believe they, they will provoke a reaction of one kind or another at some point. You're kind of frightening this. Is that what we get from your from your book? Yes, in part, that is what you get from the book. I mean, right. look, uh, I didn't write it, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not, I didn't write it out of a, a wellspring of happiness. I wrote it as a warning. I hope people read it and heed it and get us off this track. But if people also, I, I, you know, I'd love to be refuted. I'm not, you know, most people don't want to spend all this time writing a 400-page book only to be told immediately that they're wrong and then have to admit that they got everything wrong. I would be delighted if somebody could demonstrate to me why I'm wrong, why the path we're on is sustainable, and why the path we're on is actually good for the bulk of the citizenry of the United States of America. Uh, I have not read that refutation. I don't, I'm not even aware that anybody has tried to make it, but nobody would be happier than I to hear it if if that is the case now i understand you've had some death threats against your life one uh one. Okay. yeah kind of couched veiled but yes i did and the person who made it um not only defended it but he rallied other people to defend it and it shows the complete brazenness of the left today he even got one guy to say that i or an institution that i'm affiliated with who also called out the threat that we needed to, to apologize to the guy making the threat i mean you know, you ask, well, why, why do you think there could be a civil war when one side knows full well that they have complete impunity and immunity to make death threats? They're well-funded. The threat was made by a man named Nils Gilman, who's affiliated with the University of California, Berkeley, the most prestigious and powerful and uh, richest public university in the nation, and also with an extremely well-funded think tank called the Bergruen Institute, which has um, on its board, among other people, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google. This guy can make death threats knowing that his powerful, well-funded institutions will back him to the hilt, that Twitter will not censor him or do anything, and that tenured professors and other people, columnists, will rally to his defense on Twitter. When one side knows that they have complete free reign to do and say whatever they want, they tend to indulge themselves in harmful and destructive ways that can lead to bad outcomes. So I, I think this is another example of why I'm worried. They know that they can get away with this, and as long as they know that they can get away with it, they're going to keep doing it. And then where does that lead? You know, I mean, where does, that, where does, where does incitement to violence lead? Well, it leads eventually, when somebody takes the call seriously, it leads to violence. And then what? Okay, you made your point. Now, I, I want to change the subject a little bit. Uh, Middle East right now, and nobody's really talking about, but there have been a lot of things happening in the Middle East, you know, partly because of our administration. And I, I know you have ancestors from, from Lebanon. Can you just briefly explain what happened there in, in the last few days? Well, uh, you know, it goes back a long way. Basically, the beginning of the so-called Arab-Israeli conflict is the foundation of the state of Israel in 1947-48, which all the surrounding Arab states in the Middle East regarded as illegitimate and refused to recognize. The first time, in, and, then, and then there were several wars. There was a war for independence in 47-48, another war in 56, uh, in 67-73, and this is leaving out, you know, smaller wars that, that have cropped up in that region from time to time. Um, the first state to recognize, the first Arab state to recognize Israel was Egypt in 1979. After that, it was 25 years before another Arab state recognized Israel and made a, a, a treaty with Israel and exchanged ambassadors and so on, and that was Jordan in 1994. So we had to wait another 26 years for this to happen again when two, uh, two Arab states, not one this time, uh, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, both made a deal, uh, recognized Israel, and exchanged ambassadors, they'll open embassies, they'll increase the travel and commercial relations. It shows a thawing um, that this, this old hardened rejectionism, this stance that, you know, we, we refuse to uh, recognize the Israeli state, we refuse to have any dealings with it, um, is, is finally, you know, more than 70 years after the foundation of Israel. But, but that's, it's, yes, I wish it had happened earlier, but that it's happening at all is a great thing, that this is finally thawing and going away and normal relations in that region are going to prop up. Now, there's still a lot of Arab states left to go who haven't done it. Um, the big, big, big daddy of them all is Saudi Arabia because of its oil wealth and its control 
of the holy sites in Mecca and Medina, and it's therefore its prestige position within the Muslim world. But even though the Saudis haven't formally recognized Israel as of yet, um, we've seen a significant improvement in relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, levels of cooperation that basically have never taken place between the two countries. Most of that happens below the radar. It's not talked about because uh, for various reasons of public opinion in both countries, and particularly in Saudi Arabia, but it's significant and it shows that something on the ground has changed for the better in that region. And, and again, I mean, we don't have to hit it, but the, the media gives absolutely no credit to the current administration. No, I mean, it grudgingly sort of has to, not well, this happened, but it isn't significant, right? Um, so, they, yeah, they can't deny it, but they try to downplay it and, 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 and um, yeah, just sort of downplay it and, and poo-poo it, uh, dismiss it. It's, 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 it's kind of sad to see, but the accomplishment stands either way. So, you know, I, yes, if I, 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 I'd prefer to see the president get the credit he deserves, but um, – he, the accomplishment is more important than the credit, and I think he would probably agree with me on that. What do you think – how do you think this election is going to play out? Mail-in ballots, uh, the courts – are the courts going to be involved? What's your opinion? Um, I think the courts easily could be involved if um, because of mail-in ballots or any other irregularities. Um, there are counting issues in close states. And, you know, neither side. Uh, the same thing happened in Florida, where essentially the Democrats wanted to, you know, in Florida 2000, remember, was a different but similar situation. We had a final count on Election Day. The question was, is that count accurate? So let's go recount the ballots that we have. This will be a little different. We may have a count on Election Day, but it won't be final because – um, especially if Trump is ahead in certain states, Democrats will say, well, wait, there are still mail-in ballots coming in and we can't certify this vote. And if an attempt is made to keep counting until Biden wins, in effect, you can bet that that'll go to the courts. I think it could also go to the courts if, say, a state certifies an election for Trump and says, oh, he won, you know, the 10 electoral votes here. And the Democrats uh, don't believe that or think that if they can hold the counting open longer, they can tip it to Biden. They'll go to the courts. And I think it's easy. It's easy to predict that some number of close states could be their electoral votes could end up being resolved in the courts. And, you know, and it may, it may be unfortunately worse than 2000. Because in 2000, we're only dealing with one state. Um, we may be dealing with three or, or more states this time. All right. Well, the stakes, America at the point of no return. The author, Michael Anton, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500 718-238-6500 or Connors & Sullivan. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. I mean, everybody who listens to the show knows we spend a lot of time talking uh, about the Civil War. And we've got a little bit different slant today than we haven't had before. And with us, our guest is Paul Michael Jose, who has what do you, you have a podcast? Uh, yes. So I run the uh, Untold Civil War podcast, and it focuses on telling the stories of the Civil War that are just left out of your regular textbooks or history books, but are still vital to our understanding of the conflict. Now, before we started the the interview, you were talking about you were talking about foreign officers in the in, in the Civil War armies, and we talked about Miles Keough for a little bit. And I think probably everybody in the audience knows about Miles Keough, Irish soldier of fortune, so to speak. But who else did you talk about? Well, so this last episode that just came out yesterday, uh, I did with a good friend of mine, Daryl Rivers, 
And that was on Soldiers of Fortune, as you said, who served in the Civil War. So we talked about Miles Keough. We talked about Sir Percy Wyndham. We uh, also talked about Prince Felix de Salm de Salm, who, interestingly, was a prince over in Europe, became sort of bankrupt, but had learned to soldier over there, brought his skills back to the United States to serve in the uh, Union Army. Interestingly enough, he admits that he knew almost no English. But as people might know, one of the largest demographics of the Union Army were German-born. So it wasn't hard to find a unit for him to command where he could speak German. Uh, he served throughout the war. He ended up being offered a commission with the regular army after the war, which is not very common. And then, of course, he serves over under Maximilian, Emperor Maximilian against the Waristas. So he's got a very colorful career. <laughs> well, that's kind, of, that's kind of interesting. You fight for the Union Army and you fight for uh, Maximilian because that's a, a little bit on opposite sides of the fence. And that's what these sol it's interesting about these soldiers of fortune is that in some of the wars, they're on the same side. In other wars, they're fighting each other. In fact, Sir Percy Wyndham, when he was serving in the Union Army, he gets captured by the Confederate Army. And while he's captured, he's suddenly sitting there morose probably, and he suddenly hears someone walk up to him and say, Percy, old boy! And it's a Confederate officer who happened to have served with him back in the old country uh, with Garibaldi. So then if they served with Garibaldi, they were fighting against Miles Keough. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so <they're... laughs> right. So the, these soldiers of fortune were serving all over uh, the world, all over the globe, sometimes with each other, sometimes against each other. Yeah. Those of you who don't know Miles Keough, is really one of the most fascinating characters of the Civil War. Uh, he was born in Ireland, fought for the papal armies in the wars against Garibaldi, joined the Union Army. Uh, was offered a commission again after the war in Custer's 7th Cavalry. And according to some sources, and uh, he may have been the last man standing at the, the Battle of Le Little Bighorn as far as the, the U.S. forces were concerned. Uh, absolutely. And he was actually found surrounded by his command. They sort of had a last stand. What's interesting about him is that while he was serving in the Papal Army, he received two medals, uh, which he was wearing during the battle, they say. And while everyone else, including uh, George Custer's brother, Tom Custer, were mutilated after the battle by the uh, Sioux warriors, Tom Custer, uh, excuse me, Miles Keough's body was left alone. And some say it's because the Native Americans found those medals he was wearing and thought there was some sort of magic or something, and they left his body alone. Yeah, because one of the medals apparently was a giant crucifix. Right. You know, so that... But at the same time, there were a lot of Catholics in Custer's unit, and a lot of them probably had crucifixes and whatever true. on. True, so, that's true. Yeah. You know, I, so I, you, it, it's a good story. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. We, we know that he wasn't mutilated, and he was the only soldier that wasn't mutilated, and also, maybe it's coincidence, but his horse was the only... Survivor of the Little right, Bighorn. Right, So that we do know. Uh, but how did you get interested in do this, and, and how can people access your podcasts? Well, uh, it originally started, I would say, when I was in high school, I was always interested in documentary film. Um, when I went to university, I didn't really pursue it, although my passion for documentary film and my passion for history was always there. I always loved the uh, studying the Civil War, I grew up reading Grant's personal memoirs, and it actually led me to join the Fighting 69th in the New York National Guard. Uh, I wouldn't join any other unit because when I learned that the 69th was still an active unit tracing its heritage back to the Civil War, that was something I had to do. So that love was always there. Eventually, with everything that was happening with COVID, I found that there was a need for things like podcasting or YouTube channels to start spreading history. And so I decided to take it upon myself to start telling these stories that I had been researching on my own. Although separate from my career path now, it is a hobby that I have. People can access the podcast uh, through Buzzsprout, 
or most other podcast hosts, including iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Okay, now let's get back to the Fighting 69th. What is the Fighting 69th, and what were you in the Fighting 69th? When I was in the 69th, I served in Alpha Company as an infantryman, uh, and I made it to sergeant. Uh, I was an infantry team leader. It was a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, I actually went over to Australia for some really cool training with them. It was a fantastic experience, and what I love, especially about the 69th, is the history is still alive in that unit. When you go to that armory, it is a museum. You, When you walk in there, you're going to see artifacts from the Civil War, World War One, World War Two. It really does make you proud to be part of that unit. Is the the armory, is that open to the public? R usually it would be. Um, right now, I believe it's still closed, uh, not necessarily due to COVID, but because of some renovations they're doing in the building. But you can do virtual tours with the historical trust through Zoom that they are hosting. Okay, so can you see the Prince of Wales flag? We They've got plenty of flags in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, they, they've got a lot of artifacts in there. Some of my favorite artifacts are there's a helmet that they brought back from Iraq which uh, was hit by an RPG or it, uh, RPG skimmed past it. I believe the person who was wearing it survived. So that's a pretty neat artifact. Well, the Prince of Wales flag, basically that was, I think, in 1860. I could be wrong. Uh, Prince of Wales was visiting the U.S., and uh, Colonel Corcoran, who was the commander of the 69th, refused to turn, off, turn out because the Prince of Wales was obviously English and felt that they shouldn't honor English nobility. And there was a little bit of a controversy over it, but... You know, by the time the controversy was going to come to its conclusion, he was going to be court-martialed, the Civil War broke out, and then the Union needed every single soldier it could get, including, you know, Michael Corcoran, who was captured at Bull Run and was exchanged for Mason and Slidell, if you guys remember that, you know, a part of our Civil War history. What other podcasts have you had on that uh, people would be interested in? We have, I've done some interesting ones. I've done one with the badge maker, as he's he's known, uh, Joseph Alicenti, he talks about Civil War Corps badges and essentially dog tags that soldiers wore back then. They were private purchase. And we also talk about what Doug Baum, the camel mascot that was roaming around in the Confederate Army, which eventually met its end at Vicksburg, which is very sad. It was a camel in the uh, with the Confederate Army? Yes, yes. Now, was he just a mascot, or was he used? Uh, from what I understand, he was used to move uh, the band's equipment early on in the war. And then, eventually, when they were at Vicksburg, there's a story that the camel was sniped by a Union sniper. But he was, but the camel was avenged. Talk to Doug Baum about it. There may be some, uh, not so much truth to that story, but... The historical record does state that the camel was eaten during the siege. So uh, we also have... I wonder uh, what camel meat tastes like. You know, I, we we know that everybody liked mule meat during the, the siege of Vicksburg, but oh, that was camel meat. Yeah, you know, I actually had the chance to try it when I was living in Kenya. And believe it or not, when I tried it, it tastes like hot dog. Hot dog? Yeah. Everything tastes like chicken, at least that's what I've been told. Yeah, but, you know. yeah, it was it was strange. Now, how does somebody get – I mean, you, you went through some of the, the, the ways you can access your, your, your podcast. But let's say the, the older people like me. Now, how do you, how do you get on it? Okay. So uh, one of the things you can do simply is if you go to the YouTube website, type, um, type in Untold Civil War, you'll find our YouTube channel. On there, I've been posting videos. Uh, those are not the full uh, episodes for my podcast. Those are just videos that – complement the episodes. To listen to the full episodes, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. Simply go to the Facebook website, look up uh, Untold Civil War, and there will be a link directly to the Buzzsprout website, which hosts all my episodes. If you have iTunes, you can go in there, look up Untold Civil War po uh, podcast. You'll be able to find it there as well. Okay, now 
Michael, October 14th, Civil War Roundtable of New York. You know, we're no longer meeting at the Three West Club or the Coffee House uh, because of the COVID crisis situation. But we're, we're meeting, we're, we're having meetings by Zoom. And this one, if you first time on, there's no charge to join our meeting. So, Michael, would you tell us how to get there? Absolutely. Well, the Civil War Roundtable, you're going to want to email us at info at connorsandsullivan.com. That's going to be info at connorsandsullivan.com. And Paul, or maybe I should say Sergeant Hosa, is going to be interviewing one of the representatives of the Sons of Union Civil War veterans. So would you like to talk a little bit more about that organization? It's a fantastic organization that's doing a lot to preserve Civil War history, as well as remember the soldiers that have who served during the conflict. Ben Frail is a good friend of mine, and he's got a lot of information on the Sons of Union veterans of the Civil War, and he will be happy to share it with us, and it is going to be a real treat to have him on and be interviewed. All right, outstanding. You know what you, know what you need to do to be a member of the Sons of the Civil War Union veterans? You can actually go to their website, and it'll give you detailed... Uh, information on how to join you do have to have a member in your family a blood relative i believe that served to become a full member but you can become a an associate member without any ties now the sons will help you research your family to find a tie if you don't know okay so it would be just like it's got to be a great great grandfather, it could be a great great uncle, or whatever you know. It could be anything, okay. uh, uncle, distant cousin. I believe it, it. It'll all work. Okay, very good. So one last time, your podcast. Somebody's sitting home at night. They want to learn more about the Civil War, or the Ontong Civil War. What are they doing again? YouTube. You can uh, find us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and our podcast is hosted on Buzzsprout iTunes, Apple Pod, uh, Apple Podcast, excuse me, Google Podcasts, most other podcast hosts. You just look up Untold Civil War Podcast, the Untold Civil War Podcast. And remember, if you want to join and listen to Paul Hosa and Ben Frail talk about the Civil War and the Sons of Union veterans of the Civil War, join the Civil War Roundtable on October 14th. Email us at info at connorsandsullivan.com. That's info at connorsandsullivan.com. We'll get you the Zoom link. We'll give you some instructions, and we'd love to have you present. And remember, once again, if it's your first meeting with us in this digital year, then it's free. Okay, well, we're looking forward to October 14th. Paul Michael, thank you for being on Connors Corner. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth, and my son, Michael. Michael, you know more about how we're going to be running the Civil War Roundtable right now since you're vice president of uh, programming. So how is it going to work and who are we going to hear on the next meeting? Well, um, first things first, our next meeting is going to be October 14th. That's a Wednesday, second Wednesday of the month, as we try to usually do. Um, It's going to be October 14th at 7 p.m. So... We will get you a Zoom link, uh, probably by now, many of our listeners, you know, even though we weren't familiar with the technology to begin with this year, it's become sort of part of our routine for many of us. So we will get you the Zoom link. Just contact us if you're interested. Remember, if it is your first Civil War Roundtable meeting of this season, you do not have to be a member to join us for this. Your first virtual meeting will be free. Um, After that, though, we are going to ask, please, please join a membership Get yourself a membership and join us for the future. That will, of course, mean discounted tickets on dinners when we're actually together again. So, yeah. But um, but our this this one should be a very good one because we've got a different take on the Civil War. Sergeant Hosa, who you just heard from, has the Untold Civil War podcast. And he tries to get into different stories that, you know, many of which are more personal 
than sometimes, you know, we love talking about the ma- the macro strategy with the generals and everything else. He gets into some of the weeds on some very personal things, some very interesting stories. You know, you heard about the camel at Vicksburg and all this other stuff. So, but for this ta- for this particular roundtable meeting, he's going to be having on Ben Frail, as he mentioned, who is from the Sons of Union Civil War Veterans. And that organization is going to be talking about what they do, uh, their historical purpose, all that kind of stuff. And it should be very interesting. So it's going to be an interview within a roundtable meeting. And once again, as we stated, our our guests are going to be able to ask questions at the end. You'll be able to type them in and we'll moderate, you know, moderate them one by one. And yeah, it should be a great time. And uh, obviously not quite as good as getting together for dinner and being able to listen in person, you know, shake hands and everything else. But who, I mean, who knows if we'll even be shaking hands when we do get together, but that's a whole different story. Now, shaking hands are a thing of the past. Verboten. Now, yeah, so Michael, seems. have you joined the, the Sons of the Union veterans? Uh-oh. No, I've got to get on Why that. not? Now, Beth, you want to tell the story of how Michael, whose great-great-grandfather was born in Mississippi, was a Union veteran? Quickly, um, he... Southern Mississippi. His father was a Baptist minister. They did not believe in slavery. He was conscripted, as everyone was, into the Confederacy. And six six months into it, when the first conscription ended, he and cousins and some brothers left and went to um, New Orleans, where they joined the Union. And he ended up being sergeant of the 1st New Orleans Infantry, where he trained troops. Um, It's just, and ended up, when the war was over, lived in Louisiana, and very proudly, when he died, that Union headstone went above his grave. In Gina, Louisiana, which was not a place for uh, enlightenment and (laughs) open ideas and freedom of expression. Particularly in favor of the Union. Yes. I come from a long line of butt-headed people. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he also served as a troop trainer for black units down in New Orleans when he served for the Union. He absolutely did. Um, There were French and black... Um, people under, and you know, at that time, that was most unusual because it was whether or not they were going to let the the young black men serve in the Union Army. So that was that was new, that was well, innovative. Tell you what, growing up with an anti-slavery family in the South, that had to have made him proud. <laughs> oh, he's a good man, but that's a story for another day. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for joining us. And I think I hear David Kincaid taking us out. Bye-bye. Stay safe. See you next week, same time and place. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voice is raised.